0: Welcome to Being Human. This week's guest is Henry Stewart, C H O yep. of Happy, and author of the Happy Manifesto. Uh, I came across you because you wrote the foreword to the book Super Engaged, written yeah. by Nikki Gattenby, who was a uh, guest a couple of episodes back, fabulous guest. So that was the connection bought your book, uh, and now really happy to have this opportunity to sit down with you and delve into some of the ideas in the book and perhaps some of the practices you use to run Happy as the Chief Happiness Officer.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted to be on Being Human.
0: <laughs> Great. And we're actually here in your offices. And I have to say, arriving at reception was, <laughs> was something, right? That The, 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 the colours, the, the the just the sense of vibrancy... As soon as you walk in the building and you do IT training, and most people don't <laughs> associate that with kind sort of you know creativity or vibrancy or creative, and and yet we've got this you know, fabulous environments that you you created here. So uh,
1: yeah, we, we fundamentally believe people learn best when they're happy, right. as they do most things best. So whether it's IT training that we do or whether it's the management development that we do, there give them a vibrant, uh, colorful environment, and everything will go better.
0: Right. Okay. And when did so you you didn't start with this as a philosophy though, am I right? You you sort of grew into this. So can we go back to when you first founded the company and and how you sort of evolved into this this Yeah,
1: I, I set up Happy at the end of 1987 as Happy Computers, which is about helping people enjoy learning about uh, about computers. But there was always. Um, uh, a motive there's always a desire to create a company that was a great place to work that was uh, principled and that gave great service and that was because i'd worked for a truly awful company before and that's been that whole impetus for happy
0: okay so so you wanted to create this this happy happy environment yeah and and w- what did that start with so you, you created this this environment for people learning with computers what were the first steps you took in order to build the co- culture that well, now exists in uh,
1: initially, there was just me, so there wasn't a lot of it going on. But the key turning point was in 1992 when I read Maverick by Ricardo Semler. And at that point, we had three members of staff. And that was a typical uh, stressed small businessman ringing back every day from holiday um, to check everything was going OK. And then I read Maverick, and that gave a completely different picture of how he. Ricardo Semler describes how he turned the business he inherited from his father, from one where workers were searched on the gate every day, you know it, mm. um, to one where they were completely trusted to, do, to set their targets, organise the work, even set their own salaries in many cases. And it blew my mind. And um, ever since then, every member of staff at Happy has received a copy of Maverick when they joined. Um, and certainly in the early days, that was, that was our bible for creating an environment where people were trusted.
0: Right and so were there examples of could you see then before reading that book and after where you you weren't trusting your employees and then you started trusting them you know what what were the initial experiences with you i guess experimenting with trusting people differently
1: Yeah um the different I mean I, I talk about a moment ago phoning back from holiday the a year after a maverick, a reading Maverick. I was away for three weeks with pneumonia, and I came back, and there was just two phone calls to make. Everything else had been dealt with. Sales had gone up, and everything was running smoothly because everything had shifted. Um, and there's one particular woman I remember who, uh, who who changed in the middle of her 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 development. She changed from being not really very good at all to actually performing well. And when I asked her why, she said, "'You started believing in me.'" And that was true. And there was a particular point where I thought, you know, i just read Maverick, I thought, right, let's, see, what, let's see, if, see if this works. And it made a complete difference to the way to her performance.
0: Right, and, and what did it take for you to, to, to start believing in her then?
1: Uh, just really the philosophy. The, the philosophy at Happy Now is believe the best. We believe everybody is doing the very best they can, given their past experiences and uh, uh, what they bring to the moment. Everybody is doing the very best they can, and start from that assumption. Um, and you will, you'll you'll find most people are. If you trust, if you start from the base of trust rather than starting from the basis that let's see if I can trust them, you know, okay. there's that difference. So, you, so I always shift. start from the basis I, uh, that people are trustworthy.
0: Right. So the shift is you, you're not you don't you don't wait for them to prove themselves exactly star i trust you
1: yeah and that and will generally because because that will generally create the result you want it will create the trust um it's like this i think i remember somebody saying branson says you shouldn't set the rules for the two percent who are going to do things wrong you should set it for the 98 percent to come want to do a fantastic job every day and that's the that's that's the, the principle
0: okay and I'm sure there are going to be people listening to this and they're asking, okay, so what happens when that goes wrong? What hap- so in the 2% of, ch- of cases where you trust and then some, and then it doesn't work out, how do you deal with that within the Um
1: well, well, you still believe the best of them. You try and work out what is it that caused that. Um, you try and work out, are they not doing what they're good at? Did we recruit the wrong person? Um, uh, are we not supporting them well enough? Um, there are times when somebody is simply... In the wrong job or not right for you, and, and you have to part company. Um, but you, st- st- but even then, it's a basis of making them feel good, making them leave well. So not just you know, uh, the, the Richard Sheridan describes how somebody left his company Menlo and wanted to come back, and when they told their new employee they wanted to come back, they were the security guard went to their desk and they were escorted out with their box of stuff, and that. That is the opposite of what he would want and what I would want. You know, if somebody has to go, it's about making it good for them when they go.
0: Right. And interestingly, in the book, you, you cite McKinsey as a good example of this. Now, most people would think <laughs> of McKinsey as these hard-hearted, you know, capitalists, and, and yet you're saying you actually cite their, the, the way that they deal with their leavers as being...
1: Absolutely, judged. but it's about self-interest, because McKin- if at McKinsey you're not going to make partner, and it's tough to make partner, they will come to you and they'll say, okay, you're not going to make partner, uh, uh, you've got six months to find someone somewhere else, and we'll help you find somewhere. Um, and the result of that is throughout the city, They are ex-McKinsey people who think McKinsey are great because they help them find these fantastic jobs. Is that in the interest of McKinsey? Of course it is. I don't want people out there who've, apart from the fact, you know, I I don't want them to feel bad generally, but I don't want them going out there thinking happy's an awful place. I want them to be out there telling people happy's great.
0: Right. And and feeling good about happy, right? I mean, that's what you talk about as well in the book, this idea that people perform at their best when they feel good about themselves. Absolutely. And so what are the things that you can do as a manager or a leader to, to bring that about in people?
1: Okay, so um, what people don't like is being micromanaged, told what to do, blame cultures, right? I think we can all agree that. What they do like is, first of all, doing something they're good at. Secondly, having the freedom and trust to do it well. Um, then having a manager who coaches rather than tells and to be valued and listened to this. It, it isn't really that hard. You know, so what helps people feel good about themselves is being trusted and being given that that level of freedom. Um So as a manager, so there's a couple of things there. One is, since the book, what we now try and do is ensure everybody finds joy in their work 80 percent of the time. And at their quarter the check-in, we actually get them to assess what percentage of my work time do I find joy in my work?
0: Wow, 80. And um, that's pretty extraordinary as a target. Um, and, and how often do people hit and
1: They're that? getting there. Simona came to me the other day and said, I'm at 90%. And it's a matter of, A, doing what you're good at. You know, this deeply radical idea that you should get people to do what they're <laughs> good at. It'd you know, never work, would it? Um, because that's what, you, that's what you enjoy doing. And then not having to get approval, not having a manager on your back, but just having the authority to do it yourself. So that's a key element is finding joy at work. And the other key element is what I've, going into a lot of organisations, what I find is that the problem is normally at the top, right? It's not the frontline staff, it's at the top again and again. And it came to a point I ultimately had to think, is that maybe true of happy as well? So one of the things I've done over the last 18 months is I've consciously sought to get out of the way you know, to not make decisions, right? I don't, you know, probably know the David Marquette story, yeah, the submarine the commander around, who yes. who decided, who made no decisions and turned the submarine into the best performing submarine in US Navy history. Well, I thought, well, okay, what happens if I don't make decisions? So we had various... Decisions happen, we've had a completely new IT system. I wasn't involved in the decision. We've had uh, the pricing changed. I wasn't involved in that. We've had all sorts of things like that. And as a result of me stepping out of the way and not being involved in decisions, sales have gone up 26% and we've gone from a loss to 165,000 pound profit in one year. And there's various elements to that, but one of the key elements is getting out of the way.
0: Right. Right. And you actually, you mentioned in the book, don't you? There's a guy, there's an example of a guy running a chemical plant who saw that his productivity <laughs> went up over the weekend when he wasn't around. That's right. Ex- exactly. And this idea that less management.
1: Yeah. Cause he was, he would be very helpful. He was saying, maybe I can help with this or that and just getting in the way. Actually, if people are doing what they're good at and know what they're doing and have the feedback from, saying the client and people like that. You know, to, you know, it's no good giving people complete freedom and never letting them know what's going, know what the client thinks of what they're doing. But if you have freedom, you're doing what you're good at, and you get the feedback, then just, you know, leave you to it. Right. With support, right? Most people don't like to be on their own. We, we some companies have got rid of managers. We don't have anyone, we don't use the title manager, but we have what we're called coordinators. But basically their role is to coach. So most people will meet their coordinator once a fortnight or once a month to get that support, and to have a coaching session. And, and the point
0: you make in the book is that that's on demand by them, right? Yeah. You, yeah. for them to pull that support when they feel they need
1: it. Yeah. So um, one of the things we believe here is that you should be able to choose your manager. Okay. Um, so uh, just on that note, one, we had one, I'm not normally chosen. I, I don't, at the moment, I don't manage anybody which, which, which is great. Wow. Um, but there's one guy who said, I want you to manage me, Henry. And I thought, Oh, okay. And so I, I, what I worked out was he didn't actually want to meet his coach every fortnight or every month. And he realized if he chose me, I'd never get around to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, to work, and it worked very well. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: extraordinary. you so you're the, the, I know you're not the CEO, but you're,
1: you have I'm, I'm effectively degree, run the company.
0: You're yes. you have the highest degree of positional power in the company, and you don't manage anybody.
1: Yeah, and I would give that advice to your to any entrepreneur out there, right? Um, there, were, there I was at one meeting of small business folk. I think it's in the book uh, where somebody said, you know, people they kept suing me, taking me to tribunals. It got so bad I had to hire somebody just to be nice to people. And that was probably the best business decision he made because he was great at going out there, doing the selling, doing the networking, but he was no good. Like many entrepreneurs, at sitting back and establishing that personal relationship and developing it over time and coaching people. And yes, I've got somebody to be nice to people. I think I'm nice too, but I'm not on, I'm not on that. Uh, I, I, it doesn't play to my strengths to, to, um, to do that one-to-one managing.
0: Right, and you talk about that in the book, as an ex- you use yourself as an example of playing to your strengths, how you recognise that you weren't particularly good at the fostering of long-term yeah. relationships, yeah. you're quite good at the networking, yeah. and introducing yourself to strangers, which I hate actually, so right. I, I thought that was interesting, really. but you're, you're not so good at the long term, so you yeah. have other people follow up on the
1: Exactly, exactly, get people to do what they're good at. I, mean, I think the example you've referred to is, is going to exhibitions, and I love talking to people and meeting strangers, and it's completely superficial, and that's great. And then I bring all the forms back. And what used to happen was that he would sit on my desk for weeks, you know, and I'd try and come up with a system to deal with it or force myself to do it, but I was no good at that. But some of the people who would hate going to the exhibitions would be, uh, would be fine with that. And this is key. Let's say it was in, let's say I wasn't the boss. Let's say it was in my job description. My job was to run, do exhibitions and follow up. And the manager would say, yeah, it's no good, Henry, you not following up because it's in your job description. That's what you've got to do. And that's how it works. In many companies. But it's, it's a bit like saying to people, um, uh, we, because we're fixed on job descriptions, you have to do, it's, it's kind of, what's the, what's the phrase? People often say, look, you have to do some things that you don't enjoy, that that you're not good at. Yes, I can understand. But what what that's like saying is you have to do some things which make my company less productive. And that doesn't make sense. It makes far more sense to sit around the office and say, who wants to do this? Who would like to do this? Who would it give joy to? Um, And that's what often happens in the office. We don't delegate to individuals here. Because, I, you know, I don't know that uh, Lydia or Simona or Susie, who, who, I might have an idea whose strength it plays to, but actually give it to the team and let them decide who should do that, which will partly depend on their strengths, partly depend on who's got time, partly depend on all sorts of things. But too many managers, as you probably know, always delegate to the same person. Right, the super
0: performer, the star, the like, yeah.
1: Or the person, is, they it's their, it's favourite. their favourite. Or yeah. their favourite, right. Yeah.
0: So you so okay, so I can hear that people listening to it thinking, okay, well okay, I'll just give it to the team and what happens if it's an unpleasant and just no one takes it and then things fall through the gaps. Do you ever find that happens? Is that a downside of operating this way?
1: No. Why would that happen? The well team... you
0: might just it might just be that this particular task or activity is not appealing to anybody. And so it just doesn't But they're happen. they're
1: a team. They, they they will decide between themselves this, this work needs to be done. Who can do it? Um it's about pe- these people have responsibility and accountability.
0: So it so it, it gets done? Yeah, it gets done. And you still find that so of that eighty percent of people found joy, how many people here are hitting that? What what's your joy level, your joyometer <laughs> reading
1: right now? Well that, that's an interesting question. Um I we're just doing the the, the check ins this month. And I uh I think that's the first time we've put it in the check ins. So I'll be able to tell you in a couple of weeks. Um, but the sense I get, I mean, I know Kathy's at 95%, she's told me that. Because um, it's a matter of, if it doesn't give you joy, can you either find somebody else who it does give joy to, or can you find a different way of doing it? Like we used to have a management report, which was called the Sodic Report, Like right? It was strengths, opportunities, uh, something else. And it felt like a Sodic Report, you know, and none of us enjoyed doing it, it was all facts and figures and all sorts of things. So we sat around and we decided, can we give it, make this more fun? So, we now have the Joyful Report. We, <laughs> I, can't, I can't even remember which... The, is a similar set of acronyms, uh, and it's we put in, you know, uh, stuff about people, as well as the facts. And we all still get together every month to review these, but um, we've made it a more fun activity. OK. So think th- of every meeting you go to, particularly if, you're, if you call the meetings yourselves. They don't need to be boring. You can decide to make them joyful events.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and so as what I'm listening to here, because I was with a different client yesterday, and, and there's a, a real sense of a, a compliance culture. So there's people listening, you know, I have to do this, I have to create this port, we're, we're asked to do, we have to do. So it seems like you've broken that, that tendency in companies to, for, for people to kind of hunker down and just suck up certain elements of their job.
1: Yeah. Why, why should you? I mean, a lot of this stuff is pointless. Somebody was telling me how they used to do a report, which took up a third of their time. And they gradually began to wonder, does anybody read this? And so they started putting silly things on page right. two and page three. And they discovered nobody read this report, which they spent a third of their time doing. How much of the work that people do is actually completely pointless, you know?
0: I, I'm sure a lot, but then it's this, how do people, but people then feel like well they feel unable to find a way to not have to do that and i think it sounds to me like one of the ways that you've broken that is by there is no there's no hard delegation to somebody yeah so there's there's nobody who has to comply in order to please absolutely
1: a boss. So, so so you know if i get if i try to delegate something to the team sometimes they will say does this really have to be done henry <laughs> and sometimes the answer, Sometimes they, they know something they don't know, so I can say, yes, this is why, da da da, da. and sometimes I'll say, well, actually, maybe not, you know, that, so there's active questioning of it all.
0: But that's interesting. So, so the fact that they will ask you that wouldn't exist in some companies, that the people yeah. wouldn't come to you and say, Henry, does this really need to be done? Yeah. So there's something else here about people being, feeling like they can challenge people that they perceive to be in authority.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the core philosophy at Happy is celebrate mistakes. You know, so there's a whole thing about, you know, it's a no-blame culture. Um, uh, Yet yeah, you can challenge authority. You can get stuff wrong if you, you know, and it will celebrate it. You can
0: challenge authority. So those are two distinct ideas. You can challenge authority and you can get things wrong. Yeah, yeah, or,
1: yeah. yeah. They, are, they are two distinct things. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. Um,
0: and well, so why would we do not want
1: people to challenge stuff? It's like um, Google's hippo thing, you know. They're, they're the
0: highest paid person. Yeah,
1: you know. Uh, beware hippos. There's a big post at many Google sites, which is beware the highest paid opinions uh, view, because if you just go with the highest paid opinion, you'll often get it wrong. Right. I'll give you right. one. I'll give you an example of that, which which is since the book, which, is sensible, which um, one of our clients is GCHQ right, the, the British and Canadian yeah. services, they really like, they, they've got their own copy of the book. Okay. Um, and uh, they, the direct, um, let me just think, the, the, they need to be at the forefront of, of innovation, right? Because they need to be up with the technology. So uh, some of my colleagues there got a million pound budget from their directors for, in, for innovation. And they set up a great crowdfunding site for all geeks, you know, where you could say, I want £500 for this or £10,000 for that or £500 for this. are a whole bunch of ideas on there. Who would normally then decide who got the money in most companies? Yeah, the,
0: the most senior person. In yeah. The group, yeah,
1: so what they did was they divided the million pounds into, 10, into 100 sets of £10,000 and gave it to the most junior people in the organisation. Literally, they, to get a £10,000 slot, they needed to have never managed anybody and never managed a budget and they then decided who got the money. So I had one, one uh, somebody, somebody I know there who said he had a £10,000 idea for a new piece of technology which improved communication. In the past it would needed five levels of approval and he probably wouldn't have bothered. Right. So they put it on, one shot, the name of the technology, it got funding within a week, was implemented within two weeks. So you had two things going on there. First, fast increase to speed of decision-making and change. And secondly, completely change who made those decisions. Because actually, in most organizations, the people who know what's going on aren't the directors at the top.
0: Right.
1: They're the frontline staff. Right. And in that case, who's gonna know the technology best? The geeks who are just out of university, or the people who have been there 40 years. Right. So take the decision-making away from people like me and put it at the, the frontline
0: did you have to go through some kind of did you have to give something up to to allow yourself to let go of that right because i, I can I hear people thinking that's great intellectually but emotionally doesn't isn't that going to take something from people to to let go of yeah
1: yeah people that yes people will say all sorts of things like well, what's my job then Right. okay now i find my role is actually starting new stuff up Right, that's what I That's what I I, I, I. I. give speeches, I network and start stuff up. So, you know, at the moment, uh, we're starting management apprenticeships and um, I've now built that up to probably a quarter of the company and so I'm now going to hand it over, you know, so somebody else does that. Because what I'm good at is starting stuff. Yeah, um, so it doesn't mean you don't get to do anything. It means you get to play. You get to do interesting stuff. You forget to do what plays to your strengths. Right. And I think that's
0: pretty important for people to hear that there's some something on the other side of giving up a lot of what people might feel makes them valuable in a company, as it certainly at a senior level. But
1: yeah, I, and it means I get a really you know chilled life. You know, yeah. I
0: like today after this interview. you, you tell me you've got nothing in your diary?
1: I've got nothing in my diary after after today. You know, it's. Uh, have you seen that video of Bill Gates and um, and uh, Warren Buffett? But, yes,
0: right. You right, know, with, with Charlie.
1: Yeah, busy as the new stupid. Whereas Bill Gates thinks used to think he had to pack every moment of his day. That's what being, you know, chief executive meant. And Warren Buffett has virtually nothing in his diary. Um all right, I'm not a billionaire like that. And most of people haven't got that level of of ability to get but yeah, I generally if you want a meeting with me, I can normally arrange have it in the next couple of days.
0: Yeah.
1: If it's important.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was the case with this interview. you know a yeah. couple of emails and a week later, yeah, you know, exactly in the diary. Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, which is extraordinary. So that's giving up. And that part of that is you giving up a need to make decisions.
1: Absolutely. I, and, I, I have one meeting a month here. Uh, one group meeting. I have I have one day, basically, where I have one-to-ones with the heads of department and a meeting with them all, which is called the strategy meeting. And apart from that, I have no structured meetings at all. I also meet clients sometimes, they have one-to-ones occasionally and I check it, wander around and check in with people. Um, but yeah, um, so I'd ask your people, if you've got more meetings than that, why? Right. I think organisations with a lot of meetings are a sign of a lack of trust, right? Because if you, if people have trust and authority to decide in their own area, this is key, you know. Let, let's take pricing, right? So pricing on the IT training side is John's responsibility. He can ask lots of people for advice, he can talk to people, but he, take, he takes the decision. Right? So it doesn't need three meetings to decide we're going to raise the prices. It needs John to decide. When he decided uh, a price change last month, I, I wasn't even consulted. Yeah? And I, I, if I had, if in the old days, if I had been, I'd probably oh, John, no, I'm not sure about that. But you know, hey, leave him; he can work it out. If it doesn't work, something else, will, he'll he'll work that out. So, what is it with your meetings? I would say to everyone watching this, why do you need them? Now, yes, some meetings are great to have a brainstorm. There's Agile has stand-up meetings where you get up and mm-hmm. say what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but those turgid meetings. Do they have any function at all?
0: Yeah, it's permission giving often. Yeah. It's permission giving is the function. Yeah. And and it gives people the sense that they're going to be okay to proceed.
1: Yeah. And so, they've
0: consulted so, the right people. That.
1: Okay. So if you have a meeting which makes a bunch of decisions, then why haven't you given other people the authority to make those decisions? Why do they need to come to the meeting? Mm. Why don't they have... It's, it's similar to holacracy, um, but not with all the... <laughs> processes <laughs> so you you just make try and make sure everyone has authority over something
0: and for those who don't know holacracy is a system for very clearly defining who has accountability absolutely what. and that yeah.
1: principle of it is brilliant the uh, the everyone should have accountability for something
0: yeah um but you yeah, but you and you've done that in a way that's less formalised, I suppose, right? It's more bled into the culture.
1: Yeah, and, and Brian would Brian Robertson, who invented it, might say, uh, you know, you're not, he does say, actually, you can't do one bit of it, you've got to do it all. But I say, yeah, that's a really good bit of it. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, the other thing in the book which I liked was that you, you mentioned some research by MacLeod in, in 2009 um, that, that suggested a, that engagement leads performance. So some of the critique of this way of operating is that is it really uh is it really a contributor to financial performance let's say or is it just an attribute of existing financial performance so that that is to say is it just the the companies that are already doing financially well that breed happiness in their staff versus it's actually the happiness that drives the performance and and he cited several longitudinal studies where they found that, no, it's, the, it's this style of engagement
1: that precedes the... Absolutely. The idea that it's in the performance that leads to engagement is nonsense. There's no research basis for it. Whereas what McLeod quotes is work, work by um, uh, the Gallup guy. Um, I've got his name. Uh, uh, what McLeod quotes is, is, is work by the Gallup guy that says there's a four times as bigger connection between engagement leading to performance as the other way around. And there's a guy called Alex Edmonds, uh, who was at Wharton Business School, now at London Business School, who researched the great places to work list. Um, And found that over 25 years, if you had invested in the great place to work, great place to work that on the stock market, as opposed to the standard stock market, instead of say getting 100,000 pounds at the end of it, you'd have ended up with 236,000. That's the hard financial difference. And he's looked at the way it works that um, that it is that direction, that it is great workplaces lead to performance. Now you might say that people who just are great leaders that know how to make a, a, a company succeed, that that's one part of it, that they create a great workplace. But I'm happy with that that as a theory. It may be they're doing all sorts of other things, but those who know who are great at performance, make sure that's one part of it. And that that it may be the other things help as well. But but those great leaders know the importance of, great, of a happy workplace, of a great workplace. And there's a, there's a, a great... Well, you might ask, why then don't investment funds invest in happy workplaces? Right. And there is. I did find one fund that does, the Pernussis Endowment Fund, set up uh, about 13 years ago to invest specifically in happy workplaces. They were $600,000, originally now $1.4 billion, and then the top 1% of uh, performing funds of across the entire United States on that basis. And Alex Edmonds, the guy who did this research, says he invests all his savings in, in the Punisher's fund.
0: Right, okay. Because I had heard that something on the good to great that suggested that actually if you took a longer span and a recent update to that research suggested that actually they weren't as as good as that initial research suggested.
1: No, the good to great companies, there is some, and just as in, as in uh, the search for excellence ones, there's some of those companies haven't done so well. But what Alex was looking at was the companies that performed well in the fortune, uh, in the fortune list. Hmm. Um, and he was looking at, he it, it was reinvesting each year. So if a company dropped out of the list, then yes, they didn't, he took the investment out, because that would be a sign that, that they may be going wrong. So invested purely in the companies that were in the list.
0: Mm, Okay. And then this other research is investing in happy workplaces. That's 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 suggests that that's an effective. It does, rather, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's something intuitive to me that suggests that if you look at happy families, and I don't know, this (laughs) might be a bit reductive, but tend to produce healthier, more productive absolutely offspring right generally yeah and so if you were to go through i don't know 20 families in a a town and you rank them by happiness and predicted the life outcomes of the offspring of those children you'd pretty yeah you'd expect a pretty good correlation right between the happiness of the family and the
1: absolutely absolutely and and think think of where you'd like to work would you like to work somewhere where you know you can get joy at work at least 80% of the time? Or do you want to work somewhere where you'll be micromanaged and hate your manager and all this kind of thing? There's, there's research which shows that the worst, the worst time of day for individuals is their time with their boss. Yeah? You know, obviously, best is with your friends. Then there's family. And it goes worse than being alone is time with your boss. <laughs> Worse than
0: being alone.
1: You know, and if, if you ask people, let's say you get into work, and there's a note from your boss saying, I'd like to see you at two o'clock. Do you feel excited? Um, you know, people don't, do they? No, they no, don't. You know. But, you know, what you need, is what helps you, but also helps the company, is to have, not a boss, but a coach, who's there to support and motivate and inspire you, and to help you find your own solutions. So this is what I say to managers. Let's say somebody comes up to you in the corridor even, never mind a one-to-one, and says, I've got a problem, can you help me? You've got two options. Do you tell them what to do? Or do you ask them questions, right? What are the assumptions if you tell them what to do? Well, you're assuming that uh, you know best, that they don't know the answer and aren't capable of working it out, that they're not as clever as you effectively. Whereas if, you're, if you ask them questions you're assuming you're assuming they're capable of finding out the solution they're intelligent, they know the situation better and that's the difference. Do you the, telling them is quicker in the short term isn't it? Mm-hmm. but what's quicker in the long term is asking those questions. So uh, one of the uh, challenges I give to managers, and I encourage your viewers to, to um, do this is, it comes from Multipliers, a book by Liz Wiseman, Um, is ask, at at your next meeting, particularly one that you've you've called, and your next one-to-one, ask only questions. Just see how it works. Ask only questions. Hmm. That's one of the challenges I give. The other challenge I give is coming back to making no decisions. Could you decide to make no decisions for three months so I've got a colleague who did this at uh, at, at a major retail store um, and they took ma- they were very hierarchical normally people you know somebody got a complaint saying um, oh I've got to got to take that to the manager oh the manager's not in we can't deal with it you know that that kind of environment and so they moved to a situation where the manager in two of the stores made no decisions instead they coached their people to make decisions um, they improved every KPI over that three month period. And I've seen the video of the people saying how much suddenly they enjoy coming to work. They can take decisions. They don't have to, you know, just back the manager. And the manager's wives talking about how, hey, he's so much more relaxed. He doesn't ring back to work every day. Um, so that, that is, if you're, uh, particularly if you're a chief exec, but if you're a director or anything, what would it be like to make no decisions for three months? Just three months to start with, yeah. see how it goes.
0: And you mentioning the wives reminds me of the Back to the Maverick book by Ricardo Semler. He talked yeah. about what a massive impact it had uh, out in the families of the people yes. who work for him, right? And domestic abuse went down, you know, all these wives are coming to him thanking him yeah. for the change in their husbands. Yeah.
1: yeah. And the other way around, their husbands as well, hopefully, of the ones that are... But in these two cases, it was, it was they were two men. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yes, we come down to... Um, on the basic fallacies of management. Most people think they become a manager because they're the expert. They know best. They need to make the decisions, right? And so they end up, you know, making, uh, you know, feeling they have to make those decisions. And that's not the role. The role isn't to show how clever you are, it's to show how clever your people are, yeah? So, uh your role is to get the most out of your people, to help them find their solutions, to coach them to be their best, and to get out of the way so they can do that.
0: Right. What if you're a super genius? What if you're Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> and you really are the smartest guy in the room, let's just say the myth's accurate and <laughs> you really do know better. Isn't it a sort of Derogation of responsibility to to not take the decision to not.
1: Well, this whole concept of you really do know better. Now, okay, I don't know Elon Musk that well, but I know he runs several companies, so I doubt he can be that hands-on in any of them. Actually, and his role, I would say, is to is to inspire. Yeah, and it's to drive people forward. Yeah, that is a, that is a leadership role. You know, to believe the impossible, and to set up an environment where you believe the impossible. Um, does he know best, judging from some of his tweets and his things? <laughs> I'm not sure he does. Um, and will he know best in the particular issues and particular details? No, I, I hope, I don't know, that he leaves a lot of the detail to other people.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and of, of course he does. It's just, it's just interesting to explore the edge cases where it may be that you, you do know, you, 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 sim- you simply are the best informed person in the room.
1: Yeah, um, there, there may be some, but you know, well, I, well, I don't feel I am in most cases. So there you go. I used to think I was. I used to think I'm, you know, I'm my, you know, I've got smarts, you know, I, I, I but no.
0: But I can see the value of doing that. So a, 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 let's say
1: a three-month experiment,
0: because you, you would then that that would shake shake out, right? All yeah. of all of the cases where nothing bad happened, right? And yeah. then and then you would see in reflection, or maybe there was one yeah, or two it, that I maybe I could have
1: taken. Come back to David Marquette, the, the submarine commander, there was one decision he, he kept himself, which was the decision to launch the missiles. That was his responsibility. So, what we say to people is, what would it be like to make no decisions and what would be your exception? Yeah. You know, an exception is probably something that would actually severely damage the company, but you know, most. <laughs> I haven't felt the need to step in there because nothing's going to be serious. People take responsibility.
0: There's no missile equivalent in happy. You, you no, retain the, the right to make.
1: Them. No, I retain that right. If if something is going to severely damage the company, but I've not needed oh, to okay. make that.
0: So that would be the one case where you, win it, yeah. you, know, you exercise it. you But we come
1: back to values. If if I, you know, if somebody's saying, "What do I do with this customer?" It's okay. Key value is delight the customer. What my question back would be: What would delight that customer? You know, you have. If we have key values, people aren't won't stray onto. You know. I don't know, uh, do some of the nasty things that happen in some companies.
0: Right. So interesting, isn't it, that, that those seem to link Then this idea of asking questions and what, what are our values? Yeah. So you're going to ask questions like, what would delight the question?
1: What would, li- the question? What would believe the best is a very common one because you, know, you have a frustrating discussion with either a customer or a colleague or someone, and the question, you know, you're fuming. And so, it's, and so my question would be, what would it be to believe the best of them? They believe they were coming from the best angle, they were coming with their experience, you know. Um, uh, it can be frustrating for somebody to be asked that question. But, yeah, so it's coming back to these values. I can imagine it's really
0: frustrating when you're fuming.
1: and they might need somewhere to vent first, you know, yeah. Um, they might need a one-on-one vent first and then, you know, think about believing the best.
0: And what, what would give you joy?
1: Yeah, and what would give or, you joy? Or,
0: of the team here who would get the most joy from doing this task. So I get, okay, so those seem to be important pillars. The values drive for questions, and there's a bias for managers to ask questions rather than give answers or instructions, right?
1: But I get you know we're only a small company, but um, we sit in in the building of the East London uh, Mental Health Trust of the NHS, and I was intrigued to find I don't know if it's seborrhea or what that they've got a whole project on how to find joy in your work. You know, I'm, meet, I'm meeting the guy next week ab- about it, um, and maybe it seeps through. the I think wall it seeps through somewhere, sorry. you know, one way or the other. And you know, so so their nurses, their carers, their their professionals are working out how do we get joy in our work. And that trust is probably, it's outstanding. It's one of the best performing trusts in the country. It's one of the few solvent trusts in the country. Um, and these, this is a, and whether, I don't care whether actually the performance came first or the joy came first, because that's, that's the attitude of a top performing trust. We need to get our people to find joy in their work. And imagine in, in, in if you go to hospital and you find that kind of atmosphere. Oh, you know, yeah. uh, there is research on this. Right? There's research by the King's Fund that looked at engaged hospitals and how many people die, right? They first found that if the staff are engaged, the patients are happier. That makes sense, right? But they also found that in the highly engaged hospitals, 96 people die for every 103 that die in disengaged hospitals. That is 5,000 deaths a year that are a result of poor culture. Hmm. Yeah. So happy workplaces save lives.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful, isn't it?
1: It is. It is.
0: Yeah. And then if you extend that to society in general, which is a, a broader topic. But
1: imagine, yeah. imagine a society where the happy workplace is the norm rather than the exception. Mm. Imagine every, the majority of people went to work. You know, I, I, my kids have started working and their friends have started working and I don't get them coming back feeling joyful. I don't get them saying, I have a, a marvelous manager. You know, one of them, you know, was having a great time. He was in a toy store throwing, his job was, was throwing boomeracks. Um And he was fine until the day he met his manager, about two months in. <laughs> yeah. And after that, he just couldn't wait to leave. And that is all too typical. Yeah,
0: but I see. You know, this 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 has me think about starts at the top because you can imagine that manager.
1: Yeah, well, he's under pressure from his manager, manager and and there's bit yeah. I don't blame that. I believe the best of that manager, <laughs> but his, because of what he's been through and what he's experiencing. That's that's what he expects.
0: So Why it's so important it starts at the top.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: and well, I suppose Brian Robertson talks about this as well. Back to the helocracy example. He's like it has to start at the top.
1: Yeah, I mean we do go in at different levels. Like in the GCHQ example, it started kind of in the middle, and it's expanded now to to several hundred. A department's covering several hundred people, so it can be done. Don't give up if you're not at the top. You can do. You know, we have, I have one colleague who, in a major facilities company, who went to his finance director and said, "Hey, I've got this happy plan to make this a happy workplace." And the financial director looked at him like he was mad and said. I'm not using the happy plan. I want you to deliver A, B, and C. And so my colleague said, oh, okay. So if I deliver A, B, and C, you don't mind how I do it? He said, no, if you deliver A, B, and C, that's fine. So he went away and did his happy plan, delivered A, B, and C, because actually senior management is more concerned with results than with, with, with how you do it. So you as a, a, as a manager or even as a member of the department can start influencing things. But, it, w- yeah, I like it best when the CEO comes and says, I want to change my... Change our culture because then you know that you can, it's easier, it's much easier.
0: Yeah, because I suppose the example of that individual who went to his, um, to his finance boss and the finance boss and, and challenged the finance boss and found a way to do it anyway yeah. required a sort of s- a special character in a sense, right? The, that, that individual needed something special. Yeah. To,
1: uh, like somebody, one, one of my other colleagues basically says uh, directors like cake, give them cake and they're happy. And cake is the results that they want. Yeah. But it's up to But they don't particularly the care how you create the cake. You know, just give them cake.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I find that in my own consulting experience. It's slightly different context, but when with, with agile working and butting up against finance
1: people,
0: right? <laughs> that, we're enemies of the finance people. And of course, yeah.
1: agile, agile is spread like wildfire because it works. Yeah. Because it produces better results.
0: Right, exactly. And my conversation with her was like, she, she wanted all these detailed plans and this and this and this. And I was like, well, what ultimately do you want from a, from a cash flow position? And yeah. you know, yeah. and she was like, okay, I want this, this and this. Okay, well, if I just put into your spreadsheet when we're going to hit these things, yeah. we could do the rest of it how we want. And eventually she was like, yeah, okay, you can do it how you want yeah. as long as we hit these keynotes.
1: Exactly. So focus on what they want, work out what they want, because they're not always, may not be obvious, <laughs> work out what they want and, and deliver it. And think the best of them. Yeah, think the best of them. They're trying to do their best. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what are, what are we going to boil this down to? I'm, I'm trying to, to, to- Okay, I've got three- oh, I,
1: I... I've got three key things, if you like. Yeah. I could bring that to. Th- I've got 10 principles there, but let's say three key things. Sorry, did I interrupt you there? No, no,
0: no, you go for it. You,
1: okay, you. number one, get people to do what they're best at. As I say, really radical idea. Uh, uh, number two, give them the freedom to do it well. Yeah, if somebody's not good at something, maybe it's not a good idea to give them lots of freedom, but make <laughs> sure they're doing something they're good at, give them the freedom, and then the role of the manager takes them to be their best. Put that in place, and you're, you'll have a great workplace. Right. But have you thought of other, have you came up with other well, things? Well, the yet? other
0: one that came through is, I just wonder how important this is, is the transparency point. And this comes back to David Marquette. And you talk about, you make your, is it right, you make your salaries here?
1: Transparent, yeah.
0: Parents, yeah. So completely transparent. Um, and David Marquette talks about this idea that you, yes, you've got to give people the freedom to lead and, and take and be autonomous, but they need to know, they need to know the contents, that, they the, the yeah. context they're operating with. And so I suppose this so there's, Transparent about the, the operating contents and transparent about salaries is that this yeah, transparency point is another Let me give you an example of that
1: so we, we're training business so our trainers, the key metric in our, in our training is training utilization that determines the financial results and our trainers don't tend to be focused on that because they're focused on this particular course and giving their client a, a, a great time right but for this business to work Utilization has to work, right? So uh, we had a point where we had a, uh, a manager who used to produce reports and, and uh, show, give them to trainers and tell them, you know, you won't do well enough or whatever, you know. So uh, my approach was to ask the trainers every month to produce their trainer utilization figure, yeah? And put it in a spreadsheet, which everybody sees, everybody else's. okay? That's all I did. I didn't tell them off, I didn't encourage them, I didn't set targets. But what happened was over a year, lower is better in training utilization because it's the percentage of the cost of the course. Um, Went down from 42% to 29%. That's equivalent to an extra 5% of turnover being profit. Okay, Mm. and that was for me not intervening, just asking them to be aware of a particular, to calculate a particular target. So yeah, one of my roles is to see the big picture and to spot what are the key things people need to be track of,
0: Right, what Once, do we need to be transparent about.
1: What we need to be transparent about. Mm-hmm. So, as I say, there's no particular interest in trainers being focused on that thing. So it needs to, needs to be put to them, this is something you need to be focused on. Yeah. So at the same time as focusing on customer delight, which is natural for all of them, they have also got an eye on their utilization. Okay. And they see everybody else's. Because it's almost that feels like a counterbalancing
0: force against the freedom point. So so, give people freedom, but then you you you've got to find a you got to find a way to 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 judge the impact of that freedom.
1: Yeah, because what we don't do is give people complete freedom. You ask people what they want. Virtually nobody wants that. People yeah, want. Right, people say, give me a framework, give me the guidelines, and give me freedom within it. So uh, one of the examples in there is, is our, our website. You know where. We have a concept of pre-approval, whereby instead of somebody doing something and bringing it back for approval, we miss out that last step. Yeah? Again, you, you don't need that meeting. You, um, you instead approve the solution before they've thought it up, but for that to work, they've got to have guidelines. you have got to know what they're working within. So on the website, we did a branding exercise so look and feel was clear. We agreed the metrics. It would be judged on how many people visited and how much income it generated.
0: But not targets, just that that's what you would track. Yeah,
1: we Maroon. didn't have a set of target. We agreed what the metrics would be. Absolutely. Um, and uh, Johnny went on the best search engine optimization we could find, the training we could find, so that he had the skills. And we also insisted be talking to the users. We didn't even know they were saying, but we needed that dialogue to be happening. I saw that website the night before it launched for the first time. It either went up or it didn't. And um, it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I'd have created um but that's the key point if you truly delegate you don't get what you'd have created that isn't the point you get what they create i didn't really know know why some of it was like it was but it was within the guidelines so up it went and when we got the metrics that's an
0: important point there for you as an individual isn't it you you've had to do something there to make this whole culture work and that is to accept well, some of this i don't like but i'm not going to Absolutely, I'm not going to step in.
1: Yeah, it's not. Yeah, if it's everything's in my image, yeah. then it's it's just a bunch of claims. And I think me. that's a
0: really important point, which is I think is one perhaps one of the reasons, many reasons, why these type the cult, type of culture you describe here isn't common. Yeah, in in the business world, and and part of it is the individual leader being able to sort of manage themselves. Yes, in a particular way.
1: Yeah, I have to see things that I'm not particularly sure I would do and ignore them. There is a limit, of course. There's a point at which, you know, if they weren't believing the best, they weren't delighting the customer, if they weren't uh, celebrating mistakes, there's a point at which I would say, hang on, this isn't, you're not playing with the values. But if it's, you know, pink rather than green or, you know, whatever it is, that's, or they've got this on the website instead of that. So when we got the metrics for that website, uh, visitors had trebled and income had doubled even without the benefit of my expertise (laughs) (laughs) and that's what you get and again we didn't need targets you know if you just get people to measure there's only one way they want it to go you know utilization they're going to try and put it up it's going to okay where can we get to
0: yeah yeah and how does the the public salaries play into that? But what is it is that important as part of this picture?
1: I think so. You regularly ask people uh, whether they like the salaries being public, and it ranges between eighty and ninety percent do. Um uh, what it means is that you know uh what people earn, you know what you could potentially earn. There's three reasons for every price for every salary increase in the spreadsheet. So you know why people got increases, you know, it's not because he went down the pub with Tom and it's, you know, it's because of this, this, and this. Um, and it's, it's just open and transparent. Why wouldn't you want people to know? Mm. The only thing which isn't open and transparent is if we ever have any disciplinary type stuff or stuff like that. That's the only bit of the, the, the whole file, whole, uh, uh, Shebang. So whole, whole network that is, is password protected. Yeah, anything else is open. Right. It's right down to the people who contact me to try and buy the company. Everybody knows about that too.
0: <laughs> Did you, do you fear people buying the company? What, what they might do to
1: it? Yes, which is why I haven't sold it. <laughs> I do, at the moment we're looking, I got challenged by a director, John Lewis. Um, why don't you hand it over to the employees? So we're exploring that as the as the way forward because yes, I do fear what would happen if somebody else took it over.
0: Yeah, but isn't uh, yeah? Is there a I, the the question in my mind though is there is there something critical to you being this leader who doesn't succumb to temptations? in some way, the way that other leaders might like to step in, for example, with the website or or whatever other example it might be. I I, I just wonder if there's something unique about you and other leaders that have have mastered yourself in some way that holds this whole culture together. And if you gave it up to the employees, employees, it might last for a while, but then corrupted leaders would emerge and, and, and ultimately entropy was set in and, you, and and I wonder almost if a more natural state for human
1: beings is more political, ego-led cultures. Well that's into question. We will see. At some point, obviously at some point I'll hand it over. It was we will we will see what does happen. Um, I suppose there aren't many I mean a lot of these companies that you know are freedom-based, yes, they get taken over and ruined. Right. Um,
0: it's and almost like, does it require the philosophy philosopher king in the top spot for the whole thing to work? Well, it's
1: one thing the corporate rebels say about, they've visited all of these self-managed organisations where the leader, you know, lets people lets people run them, but it says every single one has a charismatic individual who set it up and is nominally in charge. So there is that interesting contradiction. Does it require that for it to work? It may do.
0: Amazing,
1: it? Yeah, but the only thing I'd say is this isn't natural to me. I'm a natural, um, I, I the person who thinks I know best. Um, yeah. uh, I'd like to get involved in this. You know, I'm, I've had to over several decades now step back. It isn't natural at all. That's what I
0: mean. I, I just wonder a more natural state for humans in. And I
1: hate to say this, but a more natural state. I wouldn't say a more natural state for humans. I'm possibly a more natural state in our society where we, you know, right. where the hero leader is, you know, the, the big thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In the, in, the, in, yeah. Western culture, if you like, of course. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And and it becomes it becomes then a challenge to think about for for coaches and consultants or whoever else who might want to come in and help conversation or help organisations or managers listening to this that they're only ever going to get so far in the absence of that that special leader.
1: Well, that holding
0: isn't... the line for the organisation. Yeah,
1: but as I say, I come back to various of our colleagues and clients who've managed this stuff even with out that leader
0: so this you can get a certain way down the road
1: yeah i mean i did uh, many years ago i was speaking at at a conference of uh, a charity organization and i gave this talk on this philosophy and we had some stuff training booked in with them and the chief executive came to me afterwards and said we're cancelling the training i decide what happens here and we're not having any of this nonsense but that was 20 years ago and that's the last time i've had that view put to me no, since then. So something's shifting, you think? I think something's shifting. Though I have to say that we never get the crappy organisations coming to us. Right, The people that come to us are genuinely the people. I recently went to give a talk at a charity. Um, uh, I invited the chief executive. As I got there, there were 12 great workplace awards stacked along the, <laughs> along the windowsill. But rather than thinking they don't need me, which I would have thought many years ago, I thought, great, these are people who get it. And will really, will, will will listen and be eager and puts this stuff into practice. Because mm. some organizations just get it and are flexible and can change and think that's a great idea. And others are waiting to organize another meeting to discuss whether to do something. Right. Yeah. Get rid of those meetings. Think about every, every if you listen to this, think about every meeting you're involved in. Do you actually need it? Is it actually bringing benefit to you and the organisation? Is it bringing you joy? Is it bringing you joy, absolutely. Yeah. Stop going to meetings that don't bring you joy. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Stop doing anything that doesn't give you joy. Yeah. yeah. Like one of the things we're doing is is, is looking uh, at, how to make more meetings more fun. So we, I went out there to look at well, who knows anything about this. So, I are in you know, Liberating Structures?
0: Yeah, I've, I've had it referenced by another guest, actually.
1: So we, we, we found Liberating Structures, which is 32 new ways of running meetings. Like yesterday, they did a whole morning of the training day, purely based on these techniques. Um, and we had a conference which sold out on it. I think it's a thing whose time has come, you know, how to actually organize better events and meetings.
0: Yeah. Right. Minimize them and then the ones you do have
1: make them fun. Make them fun, yeah. 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 Meetings that create ideas, meetings that come up with new things, you know, like uh, can be really useful. It's a dull decision making meeting which we need to get. A dull regular decision making.
0: And actually, as you say, it's not the meeting so much, it's the symptom of the need to be involved in the decision in yeah. the first place. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The lack of trust, the lack yeah. of letting go. Yeah good this is the being human podcast the question i ask most of my guests is for you henry what does it mean to be human
1: (laughs) um it means all of this stuff it that's it's about you know believing the best of people it's about um relationships with people it's about not being on your high horse it's about uh I was about to say, doing to others as you'd like to be done to, but actually, that's not a good basis for management. Good basis for management is doing to others as they would like to be done to. Um, uh, but yeah, that's that, that's creating fun and joy. That's being human.
0: Wonderful. Anything else you'd like to add
1: before we close out? Oh, Anything? lots, I'm sure. But no, I'm happy to close there. Brilliant.
0: Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.